Greetings and welcome to Unsupervised Learning. I'm Daniel Meisler, and this is a weekly show that brings you the most interesting content in InfoSec, technology, and humans. The idea is to curate around three to five hours of weekly reading into a 15 to 30 minute summary. The goal is to have you caught up on current events, tell you about the best content from around the web, and hopefully give you something to think about as well. You can get the companion newsletter with all the show notes and links at danielmesor.com newsletter. All right, welcome to episode 92. Lots to talk about in InfoSec this week, so we're going to go ahead and get started. Equifax has been hacked using a long-existing but newly discovered Apache Struts deserialization vulnerability. Looks to be one of the worst breaches in history because of the combination of the size, which is 143 million accounts, and the sensitivity of the data, which includes social security numbers, credit card numbers, dates of birth, names, addresses, etc. There's a whole bunch of emotion actually right now in the InfoSec community around the breach with a whole lot of people claiming that attacking Equifax is actually victim shaming and that they're actually victims because they're the ones who got hacked. And a lot of other people are saying that we the people are actually the victims and Equifax is a negligent company that lost our data and made us victims. And it's it's been a bit heated on both sides around this. I'm somewhat reminded of what someone said about the difference between people who have access to top secret information and those who don't, especially when they try to debate like the finer points of like morality or the future or whatever. Basically, if you don't have good information about a topic and you're fiercely debating morality and other facts with people who do have that information, you're likely to look like an idiot no matter how smart you are. My advice on this is to defend yourself and those you care about. And I've got more on that in the recommendations section this week. But to withhold your opinions until there's more information available. There's likely to be a lot of motion in the facts within the next month or so. And until then, I think the most vocal responses are likely to either be obvious or wrong. Brian Krebs decided to look into the life of Marcus Hutchins, who became famous when he found the kill switch for a recent internet worm, and revealed that he was in fact a prolific malware author for a good part of his digital life. A lot of people are confused by this. They, they want to know if he's a good guy or a bad guy. And the situation reminds me a lot of Snowden in this way, because as I write about uh, here in a different place, it's kind of a false dichotomy to think of this as a good or a bad person, right? So it looks like he used to be a malware author and it looks like he largely stopped according to Krebs's uh, research a number of years back. And then of course he saw this worm thing about to happen. He found the back door and he stopped it and probably saved a lot of people a lot of time and money. And uh, these facts don't actually oppose each other. They, they coexist as truths in a complex reality. People are multiple people. And my guess, based on knowing very little about this, but just, you know, having some experience with human nature, is that he's probably a good-hearted guy who likes hacking, making money, and has been transitioning into a more mature and responsible guy 
over the last several years. His past simply caught up to him because of the positive exposure he got from stopping this worm. Facebook has revealed that Russia spent $100,000 on around 3,000 ads over the last couple of years, ending in May of 2017. And the goal was evidently to seed social conflict in the U.S. on topics like immigration, race, and equal rights. Virtually everyone I know who is both an infosec and has a military slash intelligence background of some sort agrees that Russia has been doing this sort of tampering with the U.S. for a very long time. And as I wrote about at this other place, you have basically like tons of security people taking skepticism way too far. So far, in fact, that they basically make themselves useless. Their response to the idea that Putin might be trying to sow dissent in the U.S., they're like, oh yeah, attribution is hard. You know, we, we can't trust anything. Well, evidently, common sense is even harder. It appears that some likely Russian hacking groups are gaining deeper and deeper access into some U.S. power companies using similar techniques that have been seen used against the Ukraine. Symantec has some analysts that are saying that the access in some places includes the ability to actually disable the flow of electricity to parts of the U.S. population. So they're basically saying that, uh, you know, they have on and off access, which, you know, disable and enable access to um to turn things on and turn things off inside of some power companies. It looks to be some pretty decent research. Um, I'm going to get emails because I'm going to mention like Russia like three or four times in this episode. But um, one possible reason for this is that Russia is hacking people. I'm not saying that's definitely the reason, but that's, that's one possible reason. Um, so we've got a real strong write-up here on an interesting hashing bug in the MasterCard Internet Gateway service, along with a keen observation that companies should pay for more critical bugs in payment systems. So basically, this bug was allows you to make a transaction which gives you a hash, make a different transaction that gets you a different hash, and then resubmit that hash, and you basically get the more expensive thing for a cheaper price. And evidently this type of issue exists in lots of different payment systems, according to this researcher. So really cool piece there. Chinese researchers have found a way to interact with Siri and Alexa at frequencies that humans cannot hear. I love the concept here of hitting on a tax surface, which is in this case, a, a voice interface right in front of us, right next to us or whatever, without us even knowing. But it's really important to note that you should only be able to access commands that are already allowed, right? So it's it's not a matter of having more access, like you can access different commands if it's higher pitch or lower pitch, right? It, it's the same commands. The, the issue here is that it's unknown access, right? Someone's touching this attack surface potentially right next to you and, and you don't even know. So quite interesting, but I think what's intuitive is someone thinks that they're going to sneak these things in 
and it's going to tell your phone to do something that it wouldn't normally do. But that would be an entirely different vulnerability and even more interesting, and, and that's not what's being claimed. Researchers have developed an AI that can identify protesters effectively, even when they're wearing a disguise. It's got some pretty cool examples, and uh, a lot of people are calling this pretty frightening, but it's starting to become uh, quite expected for me at this point. And I think we should just assume that surveillance is going to be matched with AI, and that's going to be the new future of what surveillance means. Um, I love what Benedict Evans says about this, where it's basically, don't think of it as a camera, think of it as computer vision combined with algorithms. And th that really is the way to think about it. And in the patching section for this week, to close out InfoSec, we have the Apache Struts vulnerability, which is um, basically it's a Java, it's a Java system for Apache. Uh, it's like a, it's an application framework for Apache using Java, and when they take input, the way that they deserialize the input is the vulnerabilities, and it's pretty nasty. Obviously, looks to be the cause of the Equifax breach. Technology news, Atlassian has launched a Slack competitor called Stride. Seems to me like the deep integration with Atlassian's other products will be the major feature, but I also hope they solve the disjointed Slack authentication problem where you have to manually add all your accounts on every new endpoint. I mean, I don't like Slack just for this reason. I mean, when I get a new phone, I'm like, well, now I have to remember all my different accounts and the different authentication I use for them, it's just pretty annoying. A new AI can tell with 91% accuracy whether someone self-identifies as gay or straight after looking at just a few pictures of them. Again, this is the type of thing where they're gonna think, oh my God, evil computers, this is somehow morally you know, corrupt or something. Just, we should just expect this. And as I talked about last week, there's just so much that can be communicated by a face, by an expression, by whatever, that um, deep learning can find that we will not be able to find. And we just need to accept this as a new reality. And Lyft is releasing self-driving cars into the Bay Area. I think Uber tried this and then a few ran a bunch of red lights and now they... Um, now Lyft looks to be beating them. That's kind of interesting. Human news. The NFL is basically walking dead. Not because of political protest or pampered pros, but because parents aren't letting their kids play anymore because of concerns around concussions and brain damage. So it's just a matter of time before the water runs out of the hose. So basically you have, you know, a healthy NFL now, but if no one's putting kids into junior, I don't know if that's called peewee or what it's called, whatever the farm is, like farm and baseball, whatever the junior football is, if no one's putting people in, then they're not going to make it to high school as football players. They're not going to make it to college and there won't be as many teams and players in the NFL. So um, 
I don't know if that's math. I don't know why that works. It's just true and obvious. So um, that's a big deal for the NFL. I mean, I think it would have been a problem anyway, even if there were tons of people playing. It's a problem because you, it's just bad PR to have all these people with brain damage and dying extremely young and, uh, you know, all the problems around it. So I think they would have had a massive PR problem even if there were people. But take the kids out of the mix and it's pretty much a uh, good game. Scotland is looking seriously at basic income. So they're doing a bunch of research to see how viable it is. They're going to try some pilot programs. Cannabis use in the U.S. is falling among teenagers while it's simultaneously rising among adults. And Blizzard is opening the U.S.'s first esports arena in Burbank, California for housing live events. It's going to be around 50,000 square feet with seating, sound studios, control rooms, and player lounges. I can't wait to go to an event there. That's going to be super fun. And and I really look forward to the rise of esports. Um, at the very least, there will be fewer concussions. Bacteria use brain-like bursts of electricity to communicate with each other. That's pretty cool. And ideas. So this week I wrote a few uh, short essays. One authentication types and their impact on forced device access. This one's pretty cool. It's mostly talking about the announcement that Apple's probably going to make on Tuesday, which is that they're doing facial scans for authentication and supposedly replacing touch ID. So if you go from passwords to touch ID to facial recognition, you're, you're getting more and more, uh, touch points or, or data points to make an authentication decision based on. And you would assume that that just naturally and obviously improves security. But what's interesting about this is you can't compel someone to give you a password, or at least there are a lot of situations legally where law enforcement cannot compel you to give a password. Uh, because what are they going to do, right? They, they can't rubber hose you. Well, I guess actually they can, but in a lot of places they can't, right? So that's kind of a hard stop and we'll give you the password. Now they're going to arrest you or whatever. <clears throat> now, if it's touch ID, well, you have to think of law enforcement as one threat actor, right? And then you got another one who's, you know, like a criminal or a mugger or something like that. Um, so with touch ID, you could be asleep and evidently in law enforcement, it's a bit easier to compel you to place your thumb, right? I mean, think about they fingerprint you, right? You're under arrest or whatever. They fingerprint you. They make you take fingerprints. Well, a lot of times they are actually compelling people to put their thumb on their device. Now they have access to the smartphone. It could be potentially incriminating or whatever. Well, take that a step further. And now they don't even have to take physically your body, your digits, your hands or whatever. They don't have to take control of your, your physical form. Now they could just show the phone to your face. Now there's some conversation about, Oh, but at the same time, you also have to, you know, click the power button or whatever, but that seems bypassable. 
I mean, the strongest possible thing, or, or at least something that would make it even stronger is if you had to have your thumb on the touch ID and you did the facial, but then, you know, that would be doubly, you know, inconvenient. Uh, so I'm not sure they would do that. But the point is, if they can take physical control over your phone, and obviously you're sitting there with a face and they just show it to it and they get access to your phone, you've taken a system where the security is supposedly stronger because there's more data points on the face than on the thumb or whatever, on the finger. But you've actually reduced security in certain situations. And, and it's a really cool highlight of why threat modeling is so important for security because you can have a control that's stronger in one way and weaker in another, and it all depends on the threat that you're facing. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, I finally found a book summarization service. So I don't know, probably for over 10 years, I've been looking for a service where I can consume lots more books, uh, not just by, you know, Audible at 3x speed or, you know, speed reading or something like that, but I want to read summaries, especially for books that I'm not super interested in, but I'm partially interested in, and I definitely want the the main points. So this service, I always, uh, I think it's called Blinkist. I think they're out of Berlin, but um, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, I believe. And I did a whole post about it, and the link obviously is in the show um, on the site, but... Um, they have a combination of a mobile app. They have text summaries of the thing, but it's also audible, right? Oh, and you can send the articles to your Kindle. So they have Kindle integration, they have text, and they have voice, kind of like reading a book, except for they do it in these little chunks called blinks. So each blink is like a concept. So I was just reading Sapiens. I was rereading Sapiens in this blink format. And it's got like, I don't know how many, but I was reading like one through six or whatever. And each blink was just like a minute or two. And it covered the entire main concept of that section. It was just fantastic. So I'm thoroughly enthused about this thing, um, being able to read even more books. Because basically what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read my core books still, you know, via Kindle or still via um, Audible and read the entire thing. But for the edges, for the periphery, you know, one level, one standard deviation away from my core books, I am going to use this, assuming there is a title. And that's the other thing. There's actually quite a few titles in, in this system already. Like I found tons of the books that already in my queue, but I wasn't super excited about, like Snowball, for example, which is about, it's like a Warren Buffett book on success or something like that. It or might've been, might, might been him and some other people. But <clears throat> I wanted to know what was in the book, but I didn't want to read it, right? And that's where it's perfect to have a system like this. So I uh, wrote a piece about that. And then Facebook's unexpected usefulness as a product discovery service. This was the other short little piece I just wrote. And it was actually because of this um, Blinkist thing. So basically I was on Facebook, which I never am, because uh, I, I think it's a dumpster fire, basically. Um, but I, I was there sort of cringing and slugging through. 
for whatever reason. And I saw an ad and the ad was about uh, this thing, you know, get summaries of books, uh, you know, quick and whatever, whatever its little pitch was. And I was like, oh, that sounds awesome. Um, click on the link, sign up for it. Good to go. And uh, I realized that I had actually purchased lots of products from Facebook. So basically the only thing Facebook is good for is finding me products and services that I want to buy. And I'm like, that's weird. So their main value proposition is complete garbage to me. And the unfortunate downside, which is ads, is the part that I like. So I'm basically going to Facebook now to find new products. And not really sure how I feel about that, but I know it's weird. All right, discovery. The New York Times did a tremendous piece of analysis on where Amazon should build its new headquarters. So Amazon came out and said, we're building a new headquarters. It's going to be equal to the one in Seattle. And uh, New York Times did their analysis. The, spoiler alert, it, it, they come up with Denver, not Amazon, but New York Times decided that they should do Denver. But they did this really cool visual, which um, it, it was part of the upshot, which is one of the sections of New York Times. But they said, um, you know, you start with this massive set and then they're like, oh, but now we're going to uh, trim it down to people who have enough, uh, to cities who have enough workers, right? And we're going to say cities of a proper size. And it just kept getting smaller and smaller like a funnel. And then it's like, all right, well, here's your last one. You end up with Denver, but really worth looking at. <clears throat> Makes a pretty compelling argument. And if they chose Denver, I'd be even more impressed. So I'm going to watch out for where they actually build it. Uh, project around things that every programmer should know. This was a GitHub project, really cool stuff. Uh, philosopher argues that we don't actually want equality, but rather fairness. A collection of adversarial example resources for attacking AI systems. Managing secrets with Git. The incredible growth of Python, Pharos, a static binary analysis tool, and Limeade, remotely dump RAM off a Linux system. Notes for this week. I am working with my buddy Jason to redo, uh, rework, refactor, whatever, the Seclis project. So the primary thing we're doing is creating Seclis branded recommended lists that sit in the root of each section. So if you go into each section now, you might have a hundred different files named by the different people that submitted them. Some of them really high quality names, other not so great. Um, and there's duplicates. There's it's just a lot of content and everyone loves it because it's so much content. We've got so much great input from everyone. Uh, but it's just tons of files, right? The thing is like multiple gigs, I think right now. And um, the bottom line is you get into a directory with 200 amazing things and it's analysis paralysis, right? It's FOMO combined with analysis paralysis, right? You're not sure if you're using the best list. So what we're gonna do is for every section, every type of area within Seclis, we're gonna do tons of work finding the best list there combining them and create a Seclis recommended list. 
and it might be up to five, might be up to 10, but it's going to be very few files sitting in the root of the directory. And then there's going to be like a supplemental directory within that directory that has all the files, right? So you still be able to get all the raw, raw, uh, raw files that people have submitted and you could make your own list. You could do whatever you want, obviously. But if you want to quickly do something, you could just grab one of the list branded ones, which has been curated already and boom, throw it into intruder or GoBuster or whatever you're using and, uh, fire some stuff up. So that's what we're, uh, mostly working on. We're also going to be cleaning up a bunch of, uh, garbage that's in like the, the, uh, in the trash. So basically when you delete things, you, uh, it, the stuff is still there. So we just got a tons of cleanup to make sure that the, uh, the repo isn't multiple gigs. You get into a brand new environment, you get a download of multiple gigs. It's kind of annoying. So we're going to try to clean it up and make it smaller as well. Uh, next thing I wanted to say thanks to everyone who's subscribed so far on their new support page, uh, slash support. A number of people have already opted in at various levels and a, a number of people have already subscribed at the 50 and hundred dollar level as well, which are the mentorship levels. So basically I'm doing mentorship for anyone who, who supports at $50 a month or a hundred dollars a month. And the way that works is the $50 a month, it's basically some email interactions and a hundred dollars a month. It's the email interactions. In addition to, uh, we do a half hour call, um, individual half hour call every month and, um, also open you up basically if you're a, uh, really motivated to, to, um, open you up to my network and, and basically, uh, try and get you a, your first job in InfoSec or, or a better job in InfoSec. So number of people have already opted at the, at those levels and, uh, have already started working them to either launch or further their careers. It's, uh, it's been super rewarding and looking to do it with, uh, some more people to, uh, to get more out of it. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Let's see, uh, recommendations. Yeah. So, there is a good chance you might've been affected by the Equifax breach. And even if you weren't, it's probably time that you took these steps anyway. So one, you want to ensure that your mobile phone carrier has a good, um, which basically reads as not easily guessable pin on your account. If they have any other security features for not, uh, not allowing people to just walk into your account and change your phone number or change the device that your phone number points to, that kind of stuff. Um, you want to do that on your account. So, so someone can't change your main way of resetting passwords. Basically, if someone ch changes your phone number or uh, messes with your phone number in any way, it's often used to reset passwords, including email passwords, which is kind of keys of the kingdom for a lot of people. For most people, really. So you want to do that. You want to, you want to lock down your, your phone number through your phone carrier. Um, you want to monitor your credit constantly. Uh, you could use Credit Karma as a decent one. And there's a number of other services that I link to here. And if you know or suspect you might be at extreme risk for whatever reason, 
and you understand the trade-offs, you can consider freezing your credit. And I linked to an article here from Brian Krebs who talked about this, I think in 2015. And he's got some really cool resources around that. And if you've already been owned for whatever reason, either related to this or, or afterwards, and someone's actively messing with your identity, uh, there's a resource called identitytheft.gov. And uh, it's evidently one of the resources that can help you get through it. And uh, there's also extended fraud alerts to monitor your credit going forward as well. So they can kind of tell you if something looks suspicious. So those are some things you can do. And, and remember, it's not just you, right? It's it's uh, family members, you know, older family, um, non-tech savvy family. Um, if you are listening to this podcast, you probably are the family resource or one of them. So uh, those are some links that you can potentially help them out with. And the aphorism for this week, a uh, few people might've heard this one, but I really love it. So that's what we did for this week. It is um, everything in moderation, including moderation by Harvey Steinman. Everything in moderation, including moderation by Harvey Steinman. And that's it for this week. I will see you next time. All right. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget that you can get the show notes for this episode, including the links to everything mentioned in the companion newsletter at danielmiesler.com slash newsletter. And if you like the show, please share it with a friend or on social media. I'll see you next time.